conversation. I had to go to the restroom. So I got up, went to the restroom, and almost immediately I just felt like something wasn't right. And uh, got done with, with my biz, went to wash my hands, and there was a nice young lady standing there washing her hands too. <laughs> I'm telling you, like I had no witty quips to say. I, but here's what I did. This is the most, I, this was the most, I made it worse. I actually turned around and went back and, and waited in a stall until she left. <laughs> So I just, I just went, I, I saw her there, I turned around, she saw me, I turned around, went back in the stall and just. <laughs> now here's the thing, that really from the second that I was in there, something didn't feel right. Now, I won't get into the specific architectural differences between the men's and women's room, bathrooms, but I, something in the back of my head was saying, you're not where you should be. And later on in the week, uh, I, you know, I think I still have a little, a few nerves in my stomach that are upset about that. Uh, I am extremely aware of awkwardness, and uh, uh, so I've, I've been thinking about that a few times this week. And I, I thought about, man, I wish in some respects that that when I wasn't where I should be with God, I had the same acute sensation, and also that when I did realize that I wasn't where I should be with God, I had even something like the sense of embarrassment and shame over where I've wound up. Uh, Years ago, there was, this is late 90s, mostly, uh, mid-2000s, there was a Bible study that came out called Experiencing God. And I'm sure if I looked at this Bible study now with all of my enormous theological education, I would have troubles with some of it. But at the time, uh, it was life-changing for me, and it was life-changing for thousands and thousands of Christians who went through this Bible study. And the basic, uh, th- the basic thrust of this Bible study was you've got to figure out what God's doing and join him there. You know, you've got to figure out what God's about and then go and do what he's doing. And this is that same kind of idea of I want to be in the right place. I want to be doing the things that the Lord is doing. And, and the Bible study wasn't some sort of mystical uh, idea of like somewhere out there you've got to figure out where God's at work. no. The Bible study was God says very clearly in his word what he's doing. Let's learn what he's doing and go join him in what he's doing. And so today's message is sort of about that. It's sort of about let's remind ourselves about what God's doing, where he's doing it, and then figure out how we are called to join him there. So the basic question we're going to answer today is how does God work in the world? And the cool thing is, is that although he does I mean, an infinite number of things all the time, as we just prayed, he always does them one particular way. Uh, that's pretty amazing, think about it, that God's answer for every single potential need, problem, question, God's, God's tool that he uses to accomplish all that he does, is just one tool, and that is his word. God's word literally created the universe, and it sustains the universe. And so if we want to join God where he is and not wind up in an embarrassing place where we're not supposed to be, um, we need to be thinking about God's work in the word. And we're going to see that in our text in Acts this morning. But one of the most classic passages about God working through his word is found in Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. I just want to read this to you. The Lord says, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, 
and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent, sent it. Hebrews 1.3, I referenced in my prayer, says that the Lord Jesus sustains the universe, upholds the universe by the word of his power. And one commentator said, Jesus Christ in this verse is seen at the center of the continuing stability of the universe. And, and the idea of, of Hebrews, incidentally, is you've got to make Jesus Christ the center of your life because he's the sustainer of your life. And he sustains your life the same way he sustains the universe through the word of his power. So with that introduction, let's look at our text in Acts chapter 10, beginning at verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death, by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Verse 44 is our key verse. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Why would I say that verse 44, while Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word? Why would I say that's the that's the key evidence, the key, uh, the key insight into like understanding what God does and how he does it. Well, here's what I would really strongly warn against as you read that verse. When you read that verse, do not think, well, that's pretty cool. God worked through the word as Peter was speaking it in Cornelius' life. Don't, don't just leave it there because that verse is actually telling us the only way God works. And that verse tells us what God does anytime his word goes forth. Anytime God's word goes forth, we saw this in Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. Anytime God's word goes forth, it accomplishes something. It does something. So what I'd love for us to be able to do is on a Monday morning when we crack open our Bibles with bedhead and, you know, a cup of coffee, I'd love for us to be able to say, I know that as I step into an encounter with God's word, he's going to do something. He's going to accomplish something. He's, he is at work here. I am not out of, when I am in my Bible, I am not in the women's restroom. You know, the, the spiritual equivalent, you know. I am where I'm supposed to be. And, and God is there 
ready to meet me and ready to accomplish his work. That's what this verse, verse 44, is saying. While Peter was, while Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. So what do we make of this phrase, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word? What is that indicating? Well, in this text, that is indicating that these people were saved. That's another way of describing a salvation event. The Bible teaches that in order for anyone to be brought out of their sins and trespasses in which they are dead, the Holy Spirit must do a work which theologians refer to as regeneration. The Holy Spirit must hover over an individual like he hovered over the formless and void and dark uh, pre-creation. In order for a person to be born again, in order for a person to be saved, the same creational work is, is, is going on. Uh, just as before the earth was made, just as before the universe was made, it was dark and formless and void. So we are, apart from Jesus, dead in our sins and trespasses, and we are dark and formless and void. And what the Holy Spirit must do, both to create a universe and to create a Christian, is to speak light and shape and form and to speak a new creation. And that's what this passage is referring to. It's not simply saying that they had some sort of mystical experience. It's saying that they were made new. This is proven in verse 18 of the next chapter. So in, in Acts 11, Peter goes back to Jerusalem and reports what was going on. And he's telling the Jews there in Jerusalem, I went and preached to Cornelius and the Holy Spirit fell on them. And this is the conclusion that they made in verse 18 of Acts 11 on that report that the Holy Spirit had fell on them, Acts 11, 18. Then the Gentiles also, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So they equated the Holy Spirit falling on them to be God saved them. So what is God's word doing in our passage in Acts 10, 44? God's word is creating a new person. He, it's raising a person out of their sinful death and into a light and life with Jesus. Now, this event of the Holy Spirit falling on Cornelius, it has parallels to Pentecost. Theologians will refer to Acts chapter 10 as the Pentecost for the Gentiles. It's, it's a very similar event, but there's also a parallel with uh, Luke 3.22 which is where Jesus is baptized, and as he is baptized, the Holy Spirit descends on him, and a voice from heaven declares, God's voice, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. So, so what the word is doing for Cornelius in this moment is justifying him. God's using the word to justify him and say, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased with Cornelius. I'm pleased with this household. I, I've taken their sins away. I have given them a new heart. I've adopted them. I've justified them. They are mine. That's what, when we see the Holy Spirit fell on them, what it means is God said, these folk are now mine. And all of that happened through the word. Friends, that's, that's a pretty powerful insight if we assume, as we ought, if we believe as we ought, that the way that we are saved is also the way we will be sustained and the way we'll be sanctified. The, 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 the logic is this. God 
God's Word speaks new life into us whenever we encounter God's Word. God's Word is always a source of life. God's Word is always a source of light. And you can zoom out and say, every time God speaks, whatever he's, He wants to accomplish, it, it's going to accomplish even creating a universe. Or you could zoom in and say, whenever God wants to uh, when, whenever God issues a divine summons and calls someone out of the tomb of their own sin, they, they come out. Just as when Jesus called Lazarus out, Lazarus wasn't like, well, I, you know, I, I, I'd like to think about it. No, he instantly responded because that's the power of God's word. Um, Jonathan Edwards, this is kind of a sketchy quote in a way, especially for Edwards, but he posited that it took more power for God to save a sinner than it took for God to create a universe. And, and the reason why that's a sketchy quote for me is I don't, I don't think there's more or less power needed in any... God, God, I, don't, I don't think that's a useful way to think about God. Like, I don't think like, one load is heavier for God than another load. So I don't like that part. But what I really do like, and why I mentioned it is, is that what we see when God does save someone is he is creating a new world. Like, it's the same thing. It's just on an individual basis. And I really... I really just want to sort of enjoy that idea for a moment and just, just, just kind of wonder at the beauty of God doing this by looking at a couple of other verses. So if you have your Bibles, uh, look at 1 Corinthians 1.18. 1 now, there are different ways to read this verse, different emphasis, but let's not miss the, the word word, okay, in, in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly for those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word is the power of God to us who are being saved. James 1.18. Knocked my socks off this week. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So this is the creational power of God's word. That's what we're talking about. The creational power of God's word. God creates worlds with his words. God sustains words, worlds with his words. And God matures worlds with his words. There's, there's a period of time in the creation story which God creates and gives shape to and gives light to the world. And then he begins to fill that world full of the things that make it even better. Well, this is a view of sanctification. This is, the, this is the same idea that God would take, he would speak life over someone who was dead in their sins and trespasses. He says, let there be light. Let there be shape. Let there be form. And then he says, and let's fill it full of good things. And as a Christian, isn't that kind of what we're about? The Lord filling our lives with more and more uh, examples and fruits, another creation connection, of Goodness, uh, demonstrating his goodness, things that are pleasing both to us and to the world, uh, or pleasing to the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, here's another one. And this one will give you a pivot, a sense of pivot between the word not only creates us new in Christ, but then it also is the thing still at work in us. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it is really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. 
the word continues to be the main thing, no matter what stage of life you're in as a Christian, the word's always the main thing. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, you might have this one memorized. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the word is where we want to be. The word is the opposite of the spiritual, metaphorical ladies' restroom or men's restroom. Uh, It's the place that we belong. And let's just think about some application on this first point about the word is where we want to be. Um, First of all, read the word. (laughs) Read the word. Spend time regularly in the word. Charles Spurgeon reminds us that if we're wanting more of God, we will find him in the word and not in in the wagon of modern thought. Spurgeon says it this way, the Holy Ghost rides in the chariot of scripture, not in the wagon of modern thought. Another, another application point would just be this. Read the word with confidence. Look at verse 44 in Acts 10 and say, whenever God's word goes forth, it's going to do something to me. And I may notice it, I may not notice it, but God's word does not return void. His word constantly has an effect on me. And just a third quick application point pertaining to Sundays in particular. John Flavel was a, a Puritan, and, and he, he, he had a, a concern about, well, a lot of them did, about what he would call formalism. And it was just this idea that people would get used to going to church, and they, wouldn't, they would just sort of check it off their box, but they weren't really going to encounter the living God. Good thing none of us ever have that problem. Uh, uh, so, so Flavel was really concerned about this, and, and he wrote a, a whole treatise on this, but he says in one place, what a pill this is to purge formality out of all that hear us. Every Sabbath, every sermon is recorded in heaven for or against your souls. At what rate soever you attend to the word, all that you hear is set down in the book of your account. Think not <coughs> that you shall return as you came. So he's saying, even if you go to church to check off the box, you are not going to return from that experience as you came. Something will have taken place. Most likely, something negative. The word will have its effect and end, and it shall not return in vain, but accomplish the end for which it is sent. The decrees of heaven are executed by the gospel. Some souls shall be quickened and others shall be slain by the word of God's mouth. So when you encounter the word of God, something is going to happen. So attend to the word of God. Don't be hearers only, but doers also. And understand that every time you do encounter the word of God, something's going on, and you should take great care to make sure that something is the fear of the Lord, a desire for obedience, a desire to follow him and walk with him, There's really no such thing as a neutral encounter with God's word. So that's the power of God's word. Where should we be? We should be in God's word. Here's another thing about where where should we be? What should we be doing? We should be proclaiming God's word. Look back at verse 44. While Peter was saying these things, 
While Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. So God has determined that he's going to do everything he's going to do through his word. That's, that's his determination. And he's determined that there isn't a thousand different ways to come to God. There isn't a thousand different ways to get to heaven. You can't earn your way there. There are all sorts of misguided attempts. There's only one way, and that is to, to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he came, lived a perfect life, was crucified on behalf of us as an offering to atone for our sins. And that's the only way. There's only one way, and that way is through believing the gospel. So, okay, the only way is to believe the gospel. Well, that creates a problem. It creates a, a question, not for God, but it creates a question. And that question is summarized in the book of Romans in chapter 10. So let's just look at some of this, verses 8, like through 15 or so. There's this question of, okay, uh, God has decided that all of his work's going to happen through his word. Now we have a potential problem or a potential question. Verse 8, what does it say? Uh, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that's the only way you'll be saved. Verse 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, and you can see the parallel with Acts 10 here. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then, in verse 14, you get to four hows. Four questions asked, all rooted in this thing of God speaks through his word, we can only come to him through his word, we can only be saved through his gospel. Four hows, four questions emerge immediately. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? If God has decided to do all things through the communication of his word, then you're left with a big question. Who is going to communicate his word? And the answer is all of us. You see, those four questions, how will they call on him in whom they not believed? How are they to believe in someone they've never even heard? And how are they to hear unless someone tells them? And how are, they, how are the tellers to tell unless they are sent? This is the business of our church. We are in the four house business. This is our mission and our mandate. This is our simple institutional guidelines. Everything we do should fall into that simple, those four simple house. We exist to answer these questions. Through the power of God, we exist to answer these simple questions, these profound questions, these, these essential questions. But they are simple. They're simple to understand. And also, they're simple to begin to evaluate. They're simple to use to evaluate another question related to my bathroom quandary, and that is, how do we know if our church is where it should be? Well, these questions are really very clearly, as you, as you hold them up to all of Scripture, 
These questions are meant to be gifts from God to assess whether we're doing what we're supposed to do as a local church. We're supposed to be in the business of answering these four hows. And one of the ways we answer them is by equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry. One of the ways we answer it is by, by me saying to you, you're, you're, you're a talker, you're a proclaimer, you're a teller. You're one of the answers to these four hows. God wants you to be someone who goes out and shares his word. And I want to be super clear about something here. This is not primarily an emphasis on evangelism. I mean, we certainly need that. But that's not actually what we're talking about here. All we're talking about here is being people who tell other people the word, including people in our church, including people outside of our church. All we're talking about is being messengers at large, messengers in general. Friends, we as a church body need to do a better job bringing the word to each other. And of course, we need to do a better job bringing the word to the world. But that's the idea, kind of the answer to the four hows. There are a lot of answers to the four hows, but one of the key answers to the four hows is you. (laughs) You go do it. Uh, Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, he just encounters the Lord high and lifted up. The glory, uh, the glory fills the temple, and Isaiah says, Woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And then a seraphim flies and touches his lips with, with the cleansing heat of God's love. It's one way of thinking about it. And then God asks one of the house. He says, Whom shall I send, and who will go for me? And after being saved, after being cleansed, Isaiah says, What? Here am I, send me. And we really need all of us in our hearts to raise our hands and say, I want to be in the right place. And the right place is to be someone who shares the word, shares the word with those in my church and shares the word with those that are outside my church. And there are just a few questions that come up time after time as we try to answer these, these, these uh, four hows. And I, I, I see clear answers to these consistent questions in our text. So let's go through these one by one. The number one is, come on now, man. Are you sure I'm called to be a proclaimer? Well, here's what I would ask. Like, what, what is the point of your Christianity? Like, what's, why do you as a believer exist? What's the mandate? What are you about? And I would say the, the answer to that is that you are supposed to be more and more like Jesus. I mean, that would be one way of answering it, right? The, the goal of the Christian life is not to pillage the gospel or pillage the word to make our lives better. The goal is to be disciples of Jesus Christ, ever increasing in our likeness to him. So look at verse 36 of Acts 10. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace, Through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. So here's the deal. What if you said, I know Jesus was super loving, but that's just not my thing. Well, that would be ridiculous, of course. I got got the appropriate ridiculous laughs there. The the chuckle. That would be ridiculous. I, I know Jesus is called to be loving, but that's just not my thing. Well, you know, or Jesus was loving, but that's just not my thing. Well, Jesus was also a preacher. 
he went forth proclaiming good news of peace. Is that, are, is that just not your thing? Like, like, are we free to go through the list of the things Jesus was and say, you know, I'm, I'm all about feeding the poor, but I'm not so much about dying. And Jesus says, no, if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. So everything Jesus was should be the goal for everything we want to be. And one of the things Jesus was, was a proclaimer. He went forth proclaiming the good news. And so as I desire to be more like Christ, I say, well, this is something I, I need to do too. I need to be more like Jesus in this particular way. In fact, you see this in verse 42 when Peter says, he commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So, so yeah, the, the first question you often get, whether they state it explicitly or not, is, are you sure, like, I have to do this? Like, well, I mean, if you want to be like Christ, this is one of the things Jesus did. So you decide. The number, the number two question I'll often hear is, can God really use me? Can God really use me to be a blessing to my brothers and sisters in Christ? Can, I, can God use me to bring the word to them? Can God use me to bring the word to the, to the world? Well, look back at verse 44. While Peter was saying these things, stop. While Peter, Peter, is there anything in the Peter story arc that is meant to convey elitism? Is there anything in the Peter story that's meant to convey, well, he was extra good, and you, on the other hand, are not? Now, Paul, the apostle, would shoot me if I, for saying this. Sorry, Paul. Uh, you might be able to make the argument with the, with the Paul story, right? I mean, this was an exceptionally gifted individual. Now, the reason why Paul would not like that is he'd say, no, I'm the chief of sinners, you idiot. Like, like no, I'm the most disqualified. My only point is, is there's nothing in the, the Peter story is designed. And he, uh, the Peter story is designed, the, the life of Peter, the foibles of Peter, the follies of Peter, it's all designed to tell you and me, well, I think anybody could do this. So, so, so when this text says, while Peter was saying this, God, God brought Peter to this moment. God brought Peter to Cornelius' house for us 2,000 years to, later to say, in this service, I'm kind of running out of excuses. If Peter can do this, if God was patient with Peter in his failures, if God gave extra grace to Peter for the number of times when he did not, I mean, think about it, central to Peter's story is, is one moment in particular when he did not stand up for the word. And, and honestly, guys, like that's on our record too. So one of the lessons we learned from this Peter reference is God can get me past this. God could change my heart. He can equip me and he can use me even though I'm kind of dumb and, and, and full of sin and so on and so forth. I mean, we see God overcoming the obstacles of Peter's sin even in this very story in Acts 10. So the next thing you'll hear is I don't even really know what to say or maybe I'm not very persuasive, something like that. Well, <laughs> there's a funny moment in Acts 11.15 when Peter's recounting this. All right, so try to hold 44 
in your, te- in your mind. So 44 is, while Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on them, all who heard the word. Now, listen to Acts eleven fifteen. Peter's recounting the story, and he says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just on us at the beginning. So Peter had a lot of things planned to say. He saw this as, you know, when he was going to sit with Cornelius, that they were going to be talking for quite some time, and that Peter had this, you know, kind of presentation. He brought his PowerPoint, he brought his laptop. You know, he had this whole thing to go through. Peter thought he was at the beginning of what he had to say, and it was enough. It wasn't about Peter's persuasiveness. It wasn't. It was simply about a retelling of the events that you know. And, and I think to just to remind everyone, and this is something we have to remind ourselves all the time, if you know enough to, to get saved, you know enough to share the gospel. Um, and, 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 and if yesterday, it, like if you're still standing, let's, let's, say, let's say this, the world is hard. The world is full of temptations. If you're still standing as a Christian today, there's more juice going on in your life than you might realize. Right? You've got stuff to share. There's stuff going on. And it's, it's the word. You just share the word. And you don't have to, to say it in a perfect way and so on and so forth. Peter was beginning to unfold the word. And God, come, that's enough, Peter. That's all I needed here. And, and the final uh, objection I'm very concerned about I think it's wrong at a couple levels. So, so the final objection I hear is, you know, these people already know this. Or these people already know the gospel. So I want to say a couple things about that. First of all, I do not believe it's true that most people in America have heard the gospel. I believe that most people in America have heard the American gospel, right? <laughs> Distinguish between those two things. Um, but I want to say, like, even if that is true, I want you to notice something that's happening in verse 36. Uh, I'm I'm in chapter 10, verse 36. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. Uh, You yourselves know. Cornelius already knew what Peter was about to tell him. He already had some awareness of the basic story of Jesus, as everyone would have in the region. And Cornelius was living a Jewish lifestyle, though he himself was not a Jew. He was living a primarily Jewish lifestyle. And Cornelius, Peter says in verse 37, you yourselves know. So that begs the question, why, why, would Cornelius, why would Peter need to go to Cornelius if he already knew the facts of the gospel story? Because it's not the facts of the gospel story that save someone. It's God's power that saves someone through the word. But, but this is, gets complicated, but it also gets simple, and it's just that when I was a youth pastor many, many years ago, back when experiencing God was a thing, uh, it would drive me nuts. I would, I, would, I would talk to these kids week after week after week, walk them through a book like Matthew or something, and uh, then I would take them to some youth conference for the weekend, and the speaker would get up and say exactly what I had said multiple times before, and my kids would act like it was the first time they'd ever heard it, 
And they're like, oh my goodness, this is like, what in the world? Like, and they kind of almost look at me like, why didn't you tell me this? But here's the thing. I mean, I mean, God does it that way. God has a particular proclaimer assigned for every person. And that's just the way it is. So, so, so there are people who know things that need you to say it to them in order for that final click to take place. Because God has just decided that you're going to be the person he uses for that final puzzle piece to drop in. It's not about reassembling the facts. It's, it's, it's not about simply proclaiming a simple a series of bullet points. It's somehow in a, in a mysterious way in which God has ordained, he has decided that he will use individuals encountering other individuals to do his work. And so this question of, well, maybe they already know this. Yeah, maybe they do, but maybe God has decided that, that, that you're the person who says it, and, and God's going to use your saying it to do something that all the other saying it didn't do. It, it really just does happen that way. And, and this is another you know, kind of moment where I get to say, this isn't on me, this is on you. Uh, friends, it's just the way, the way it just works is there's, there's obviously good benefit, important benefit to the preaching of God's word. But I can't tell you the number of times in which just an, an, an average church member shares a simple truth with another church member, and that's the moment. That's the moment of encouragement. That's the moment of life change. So you have a responsibility. Uh, it doesn't matter if you can say it as well. It doesn't matter if this is your primary gifting. You just have to understand that the way God works is he just puts people together. He makes divine appointments, as we see in this passage. And some of you have divine appointments with others in this church, outside this church, in which the thing you say will not be maybe even what you plan to say or as extensive as you thought you were going to say. And suddenly, God's going to use that conversation, that encouragement, that text, that email to do something in someone else's life. And it wasn't about you ever, right? It was always his word. But God had chosen for you in a particular moment to be the instrument of his word. He had chosen for you to be the answer to some of those four hows. And that's really the message this morning. Like, I don't want to wind up in the place where God isn't. Well, where is God? God's always in his word. I don't want our church to wind up in a place where God isn't. So where is God as it relates to that? He's answering these four hows. He's sending people to people to proclaim the word of truth. People inside the church and people outside the church. And it's really as simple as that. Let me pray for us. God, in, uh, in, in the, the, the verse I didn't read in Romans 10, it says, how beautiful are the feet of those that bring the good news. That's probably the least beautiful part of our bodies, Lord. I, I just pray that you would help us to see that that's not incidental. In the Old Testament, in the ancient Jewish culture, the feet were extremely stressed and dirty and broken. And yet, if those feet bring good news, they are beautiful. I just uh, I want to pray specifically for the women of our church, Lord. Uh, 
the emphasis on beauty, it's just at a new level on outward beauty. Uh, culturally, it was just, it's just extreme. I remember a conversation that um, my wife and I had before we were married where she said, I want to have, want to have a beauty that doesn't fade. Lord, I just pray for the women of our church that, that, that they would cling on to that verse. I think it's uh, Romans 10, 16. That they would say, I, I want to have, I want to be beautiful because I bring the good news to other people. Lord, I, I just pray that you would fill our church with a, a gladness over the privilege of being in your word. Lord, help us to be in your word. And then, Lord, fill us with the joy and gladness of sharing your word. And let us do both, Lord, with confidence that just as Peter, while he was speaking, let us be confident that as the word is going forth, whether it's into us or out of us, as the word is going forth, God, you will do all that you have intended to accomplish in it. God, may we be hopeful and encouraged to see that we could be, I mean, if Peter was, that we could be proclaimers of your word. And Lord, lastly, I just want to thank you for your word. God, there is no other God. There is, there's, no other, there's no other faith. There's no other path that has this holy word. Thank you, God, for your holy word. Thank you for the wisdom in it. Thank you for the life in it. Thank you for the power that comes through it, Lord. Thank you for your word. Let us not neglect it. Let us savor it, seek it out and share it with others. In Jesus' name I pray.